0: Father, thank you for a chance to talk about the three angels' messages, and we ask God that you would bless us, that you would teach us, and that you would really inform our understanding of the text, and then give us a passion to live the message of the text. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bible, I'd like to invite you to open it to Revelation chapter 12. In order to have a proper understanding of the three angels' messages, we actually need to back up a bit, and we need to go to Revelation chapter 12, because Revelation chapter 12 really lays out the foundational issues that we need to understand in order to really understand the significance of the three angels' messages, and... um, Because of our time constraints, I'm going to assume that you guys know a lot about, at least something about Revelation chapter 12, because we don't have time to read all of Revelation 12, all of Revelation 13, and all of Revelation 14. So, Revelation chapter 12, just to kind of give you the big picture, Revelation 12 is this picture of the cosmic conflicts between good and evil that originated in heaven between Christ and Satan. Now, that war in heaven was eventually transferred to earth. Satan was cast out of heaven down to the earth. And that war then continued to rage on earth. And let's look there in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, here we see Satan is thrown down, or if you have the King James cast out. I'm reading from the ESV, by the way. I just My translation is the one I like. Um, but, uh, so, Satan is thrown out. And in verse 10, it helps us to understand when Satan was cast out. Look there in verse 10, Revelation 12, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now... The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Notice there in verse 9, it says, The great dragon is cast out. He is cast out. He is cast out. And then in verse 10, you have the location of when that took place in time. In verse 10, when Satan is cast out, the announcement is made, Now has come salvation. Now has come the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. When did salvation come, actually? Wow, I didn't... Okay, it was promised from the foundation of the earth. Jesus is the Lamb slain. But when was the Lamb slain? When Jesus Christ came. And it's interesting because John not only wrote Revelation, but he also wrote the Gospel, John. And go with me to the Gospel of John, John chapter 12. And I want to notice something really significant there in John chapter 12. And we're going to look in verse 31 and 32. 33. Jesus here is facing the cross, and he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be what? Cast out. And the ruler of this world in John's writings here is Satan. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Notice here in John chapter 12, according to John 12, when was Satan, the prince of this world, when was he cast out? John 12, 31? At the cross. When Jesus was lifted up drawing all humanity to himself, humanity had given their allegiance to Satan and Jesus came and broke that allegiance and drew humanity to himself and cast Satan out of his representative role of humanity. John 12 tells us Satan was cast out at the cross. Go back to Revelation chapter 12. Now certainly Satan got the boot before the cross. Can you say amen? Amen. And yet when we read Job chapter 1, Satan continued to have access. You remember that story. Job is there, God is there, and the angels are there, the sons of God as they're called, and, and, and Lucifer is there, Satan is there, and God says, Satan, where are you from? Well, he says, I've just been wandering around on the earth. You see, even after the fall, Satan continued to have access to heaven. But according to Revelation chapter 12 and John chapter 12, at the time of the cross, Satan was cast out of heaven at that time that salvation wasn't just promised, but that time when the salvation was accomplished for humanity. Look there in Revelation 12. We'll read it again in verse 9, now that you have the background of John 12. The great dragon was thrown out, cast out. The ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was cast out to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now! the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been cast out who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they love not their lives unto the death. Now, if you were an angel and you lived in heaven and Satan has now been permanently expelled from your neighborhood, how would you feel? you would feel happy. Now, if you live on earth and Satan has been permanently exiled to your neighborhood, how would you feel? Okay, let's look at that. Verse 12. Satan has been cast out, verses 9 and 10. Verse 11, they overcome Satan. Verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. You see that, yes or no? After the cross, Satan's time, his days are numbered. You see, at the cross, Satan was permanently expelled from heaven. He was cast down to the earth, and heaven is rejoicing. They are rejoicing. Satan no longer has access to our neighborhood. We are thrilled. Unfortunately, earth, the devil is exceptionally upset with you. He is very angry, and he knows that his days are numbered. Now, verse 13, I always like verse 13. I, I like it because it, it, have you ever had an aha moment where you just, ding, you get it? Well, it describes a satanic aha moment when the devil just sort of woke up one day and realized, oh, I've been kicked out of heaven and I can't go back at all. Look at it. And when the dragon saw that he had been cast down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Isn't that interesting? It's like, he just like, oh, I can't believe it. I'm stuck here. What will I do? I know I will pursue the woman. The woman, I will pursue her. And the woman, of course represents the people of God. Can you say amen? Amen. And this is an interesting thing, and maybe this is just a little side note. The church is the bride of Christ. What is it that turns a woman into a wife and a man into a husband? Okay, a marriage. And what is it in marriage? It's the vows. What's a a biblical word for vows? Covenant. 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 When the church, the bride of Christ, is faithful to the covenant, her vows, she is a pure woman. When she is unfaithful to the covenant, she is an adulteress. Now, Satan pursues the woman, and the woman flees from this satanic attack. Notice verse 14. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness where she is to be nourished for a times, times, and a half a time. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth to, after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. Now, this is such interesting language to me. I don't know if you ever did this when you were a kid. You're probably better human beings than me. But when I was a kid, we would, we would find like a mouse or some sort of, you know, ground squirrel. And we would chase it trying to catch it catch it and then it would go hide in a hole somewhere and then you know we would sort of say you know we want to catch this thing and he's stuck in his hole and so we would we would then get buckets of water and we would pour it into the hole hoping that the mouse or the whatever it was would say we don't like it in here and then come running out And it's kind of what it's saying, like the serpent is pursuing the woman and the woman runs away and hides and then Satan is upset because the woman is hiding in the wilderness and he says, we're going to flush her out. Let's pour water out. Now what's interesting here is, is this, I want to ask you a question. Was Satan's attack against the church successful or unsuccessful? Okay. Uh, Okay. So that's exactly what I expected you to say, and and I like to do that. I like to trick people. It's fun. (laughs) Okay. The result, and not to be mean, but because it's important for us to really try to listen to the text, and that the the trick serves to to help us pay attention to the text. Now, look what happens in verse seventeen. Um, the earth came to help the woman, but the earth opened its mouth, swallowed the, uh, the, uh, the river that the dragon poured out of his mouth, and the dragon became furious with the woman and went to make war on the what? The remnant. Satanic attack was so effective against the Christian church that the Christian church was reduced to a <coughs> remnant. You see, Revelation chapter 12 is really such an important verse text for us as Seventh-day Adventists because it gives a historical sweep. By the way, even non-Adventist scholars who do not believe, even secular scholars, particularly, I'll give you an example, Dr. David Aune. He is probably the leading scholar on the book of Revelation, and, and he doesn't even believe in Jesus. He's not a Christian. And yet, on the basis of the text of Revelation chapter 12, he says that Revelation 12 is designed to give us a historical sweep of what John expected the future of the Christian church to be. Is that awesome or what? I always like it when people who aren't committed to God and the Bible in the Seventh-day Adventist church agree with us. It's nice because it it helps to to me to show that we're not crazy for seeing what we see, but that if you're looking, you should be able to see it. Can you say amen? amen? So I like Revelation 12 because it paints this picture of the history of the people of God. The history begins with this conflict in heaven. The conflict is transferred to the earth. Satan then begins to attack the people of God. His attack is so successful that the church is reduced to nothing more than a... Remnant. And then it defines the remnant as those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, look at chapter uh, 13, verse 1, or chapter 17, the very last verse, depending on how your translation does the versification. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten crowns on his horns and blasphemous names on his heads. Chapter 13. Chapter 13 presents a picture of Satan working through his emissaries, the earth beast and the sea beast. And the function of chapter 13 is actually to turn the remnant into non-remnant. The function of Revelation, Revelation 13 is to turn the remnant into non-remnant. You see, does Satan need to use the dragon, the beast, the sea beast, and the earth beast, which I would call the Satanic Trinity? Does Satan need to use the satanic trinity to convince those who break the commandments of God to break the commandments of God? They're already doing it. So Revelation chapter 13 is Satan's plan to turn the remnant, those that are committed to the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus... It is his plan to turn the remnant into non-remnant and to keep the non-remnant non-remnant. Do you follow that, yes or no? That's the function of Revelation 13. And Satan plans to do that through the dragon of Revelation 12, the sea beast of Revelation 13, and the earth beast of Revelation 13. Now... Let me tell you this, when I first started reading the book of Revelation, it took me a long time, and I I don't consider myself... I mean, I was a reader. I was a pretty good reader. I liked to read a lot. But when I first started studying the Bible, it took me a while to figure out that there were two beasts in Revelation 13. Did anybody else ever have that problem? Yeah? I mean, I just... I was... I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe I wasn't as literate as I would have thought I was. But I mean, I did a lot of reading. But it just took me the longest time just to get the basic story. Does that make sense? Like, what's just the basic narrative there? And, and so, basically, this is, this is the basic narrative. You have this battle between good and evil that's transferred to this earth. Satan then unleashes his attack on the church. He whittles the church down to nothing less than a remnant. And then Satan endeavors to turn that remnant into non-remnant. And he does that through a counterfeit son, which is the sea beast and a counterfeit Holy Spirit, which is the earth beast. Okay? Now, what do you mean counterfeit son, counterfeit Holy Spirit? And, and the dragon, by the way, is a counterfeit father. We don't have time today to get into all of that. But if you want to listen to the sermons that I've already preached on this, they're on audio verse, and I preach them at GYC as I already indicated. But let me just give you an example. Let me just give you a quick example. The Father shares his throne with the Son, Jesus Christ. The Father gives his power and his authority to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ represents the Father. Here's another. Jesus began his ministry when he was baptized coming up out of the water. Jesus' ministry was three and a half years long. Jesus, at the end of his ministry, had a death, burial, and resurrection. Let's read about the sea beast just so that you can see that. The beast, in verse thir- chapter 13, verse 1, came up out of the what? Out of the water. Verse 2. Um, verse 3. One of its heads seemed to have a what? A mortal wound. Now, what does mortal mean? Deadly. Death. And then it says that that deadly wound was what? Healed. If something is mortally wounded and then healed, what is that? That's a resurrection. Notice it says they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying who is like the beast who can fight against it. Do you see that yes or no? Isn't that interesting? The dragon gives his authority to Jesus. This is another interesting. Do you know what the word Michael means? Who is like God? Who is like God? That's what Michael means. Who is like God? And what what, what does it say here in Revelation chapter 13 about the beast? Who is like the beast? Michael, Jesus, who is like God? The beast, who is like the beast? You see that, yes or no? So in other words, this first beast, the sea beast, is a counterfeit, Jesus Christ. Now we know that counterfeit was fulfilled historically in the Christian church, through the papacy. We know that. Now, let's go down and let's look at the earth beast. Let's look at the earth beast. And it comes up out of the earth. And it's interesting, it says um, it, in verse 13, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to the earth in front of the people. What is the Holy Spirit all about in the book of Acts? It's about doing signs. And when the Holy Spirit comes, how does He come? He comes with fire. So in Revelation chapter 12 and 13, we see this cosmic sequence. There's this battle, this conflict between good and evil. That conflict is transferred from heaven to earth, and then that conflict works its way through history in satanic attacks against the Christian church. And that attack is so successful that the church is reduced to a remnant who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And Satan says, I will have none of this. I am very displeased with this remnant who insists on keeping the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus. I will conspire together with the the satanic trinity, something that looks like the Father, something that looks like the Son, and something that looks like the Holy Spirit, and I will do my best by looking right, talking right, and acting right. You understand what I'm saying? I will look like God, and I will look like the Son, I will look like the Spirit, and I will trick them who are the remnant into following me. Does that get the big picture? That's kind of neat, isn't it? Is that helpful to you just to see that big narrative there? To me, it just makes it simple. It's a package that's easy to see and easy to hold on to. Now, God, in Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 to 12, God introduces His way, now listen to the language, of keeping the remnant remnant and helping the non-remnant remnant to become remnant. And that's the function of the three angels' messages. When God's people are encountering a counterfeit that is designed to turn them into non-remnant, when the remnant is experiencing a counterfeit that is designed to turn them into non-remnant, God sends them a message. And this message is the message of the three angels. That message is designed to help The remnant stay remnant. And God sends the three angels' message to every nation, every kindred, every tribe, every language, and the function of that is to help those that are not remnant to become a part of remnant. So let's look at that. Revelation chapter 14, and we're going to begin. uh, You know what? Um, Let's see. I still have 45 minutes or so. Half an hour, excuse me. So I, I want to spend a little more time developing what the issue is going to be there in Revelation 13. And let's look at the first issue, and we're going to actually look in chapter 12, verse 17. The first issue is the commandments of God. And, and, and you know, the book of Revelation is built on a chiasm. And a chiasm is a literary structure and that literary structure is designed to bring emphasis to certain themes and concepts. Um, so, so, so the book of Revelation, if you read Revelation 1 and Revelation 22, many similarities. Revelation 2 and 3, Revelation 20 and 21, many similarities. So the book is sort of built like this until you get to the middle. And the middle is the part that there's the strongest emphasis on. And it's so interesting to me. Most people don't know anything about the chiasm, but when most people go to Revelation, where do they go? They go right to Revelation chapter 13, which is right in the middle, the center of the chiasm, all about the beast. Isn't that interesting? So even if you don't know about literary structure, it's something that we feel when we read it. So right there in Revelation 13, you have, have this, this block of text that is really the center, the focal point of the book. And that center focal point has an introduction, and that center focal point has a conclusion. Check out the introduction. It's 1217. The dragon was furious with the woman, went to make war on the remnant of her offspring, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, and he stood on the sand of the sea. Okay, so the dragon goes to make war on those who keep the commandments and hold the testimony of Jesus. Now, notice chapter 14, verse 12. This is the conclusion of that final crisis. 14:12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the what commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Now notice the introduction, they keep the commandments of God, and the conclusion, they keep the commandments of God. So here's my question for you today. Do you think that Seventh-day Adventists are insane for thinking that the commandments of God might have something to do with the issues at the end of time? I think there's... There's a reasonable, we base our belief that the issue at the end of time involves the commandments on reasonable evidence. Can you say amen? amen. Like that the commandments of God are specifically mentioned in Scripture. Yeah. That to me sounds a lot more reasonable than anything modern like a barcode. Right? Now, So the first issue is an issue of obedience. And if you look there, take Revelation 13, verse 4. They worshipped the dragon who had given authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast. What does the first commandment prohibit? Worshipping anybody other than who? God. In verse 4, Satan is trying to lead people to violate the first commandment. Worship only God. Now, notice there in verse 5 and 6, verses 5 and 6, and it says very clearly, "...the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. It was exercised authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His what? His name." What commandment in the Old Testament forbids the misuse of the name of God? the third commandment. Now, notice Revelation chapter 13, and we're going to look at uh, verse 14. And by the signs it was allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image to the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Is there anything in the Ten Commandments that prohibits image worship? Seems like I read something about that one time. Yeah. Number two, the second commandment forbids idolatry, image worship. So now notice you have the beast, the dragon, the, you have the sea beast, the earth beast, and the dragon. These three counterfeits are conspiring together to lead people to worship in a way that is inconsistent with the commandments of God whether it's worshiping somebody other than God, worshiping in a way that abuses the name of God, or worshiping in an idolatrous way. Do you see that, yes or no? So we could say very clearly from the text, we have this battle between good and evil, and then we have this transferred from heaven to earth, and then the church is reduced to nothing but a remnant, and Satan is seeking to destroy the remnant through a counterfeit that looks like God, talks like Jesus, and looks like the Spirit but isn't, and he is then going to lead people to worship in a way that is inconsistent with God's commandments, which leads us to the second major issue. And I'm just going to read several verses really quick. Just listen for the reoccurring word. Verse 4, They worshipped the dragon, for he had given authority to the beast. They worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? Verse 8, All who dwell on the earth will worship it, Verse 12, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Notice verse 15, it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And notice now chapter 14, verse 9 and 11. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image. Verse 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast. What is the issue here? Worship. Worship. Now notice, we've looked at the two fundamental issues, at least so far, in the book of Revelation at the end of time is an issue of worship within the framework of the commandments. Again, I want to ask you a question. You know, sometimes... Um, there's two Seventh Day ad, two kinds of Adventists frequently. There's the first kind of Adventist that just knows what they believe even though they don't really study Scripture so much to even know that there could be objections because they've not studied the Bible enough to know their objections. That was kind of the way I started out. I was so convinced of the Adventist message, but I knew nothing about the Bible, so I knew nothing about all of the thousands of potential objections. And then there's another kind of Adventist that knows about the objections, and so because of all of the potential objections, there are a little... Weak need, right? Anybody ever been on either of those places? Yeah? You know so little about the Bible, but you know that you're right in the Advent message, and then, then you find out that you know so little about the Bible that you might not be right, and it makes you a little weak need. And then you just keep studying, and God will help you to really understand Scripture, which is where we should be. Amen? Amen. We shouldn't be convinced because our preacher told us. And we shouldn't be scared because there's objections. We should seek God's truth in Scripture and find true liberty in the truth of God's Word, not in the pride of our opinions. But I would like to say at this point, I think as I've wrestled through the issues, I have developed such a joy in seeing that Adventists are not crazy. We're not. We're not lunatic fringe. We are simply seeing the reasonable position of Scripture that there will be counterfeit things that look like Jesus, talk like Jesus, act like Jesus that aren't Jesus, that seek to lead the church to worship in a way that is inconsistent with the commandments of God. That is what Seventh-day Adventists have always said about the mark of the beast and the crisis at the end of time, and it is still biblical today. In fact, there is more evidence for this, even in the scholarly community, than that there has ever been, ever. And I want to just thank Jesus for just making such a simple picture. You know, sometimes, how many of you ever gotten to reading the book of Revelation and you've said to yourself, how could anybody make sense of this? How many of you ever said that? One famous commentator said, the book of Revelation either finds a man mad or leaves him mad. (laughs) And we've probably all met those people too, right? The crazies that study it because they are crazy or people that became crazy through studying it. But but to me, when I just read the simple message there, it is a simple Christian challenge to be faithful to proper worship for God within the framework of the commandments that He has given. Now, there's a third major issue in the book of Revelation, and it's there in 1217 and in 1412. It says, They keep the commandments of God, and they hold to the what? The testimony of Jesus, Revelation twelve, seventeen, and faith in Jesus, Revelation 14, 12. Testimony of Jesus. Revelation 1910 says the testimony of Jesus is the what? Spirit. spirit of prophecy. Okay. Now the spirit of prophecy does not mean Ellen White. It means the spirit that inspires the prophets. Ellen White, I believe, had the spirit that inspires the prophets. So it includes Ellen White, but it doesn't mean Ellen White. You see the difference? Jesus says in John 5, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And then he says, These are they that what? Testify of me. Testify of me. All of the prophetic witness... Testifies about Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter to me if the prophet is canonical or non-canonical. It doesn't matter if it's in the Bible or outside the Bible. If they're an authentic prophet, they're testifying of Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? amen? So what is Revelation 12, verse 17 saying? They keep the commandments of God. That is, they live the moral demands of Scripture. And they believe the truth that's revealed about Jesus Christ. They believe the truth about who Jesus is. They believe, they hold to the prophetic testimony of Jesus Christ. And that ties closely in with Revelation 14, 12, which says they not only keep the commandments of God, but they keep their, what? Faith in Jesus, or they have the faith of Jesus. Whatever translation you prefer, it matters not to me because genitives are tricky. Um, The point is that the third major issue is a fundamental commitment of faith to the authentic Jesus. Let me say that again. A fundamental commitment of authentic, uh, uh, to the authentic Jesus. Remember, the first beast, the sea beast, is a counterfeit Christ. And so there is in the book of Revelation a call to an authentic faith commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the issue. So we know there's a controversy between good and evil. It's been transferred from heaven to earth. And that controversy surrounds three major issues worship, obedience, and faith in the authentic Jesus. Can you say amen to that? Now. Um, let's look at the first angel's message. One other thing, by the way, this, this study, you don't have to wait until you've been studying with somebody for five months to give this You can give this study to anybody. And you don't have to mention anything about the Catholics or anything. I mean, you can just give this study. You can just walk them through like I'm walking you through it. And it's so powerful because it, it opens people's minds to the importance of being fully devoted followers of Jesus, worshiping God in a proper way, and surrender to the commandments of God. Does that make sense? So if you do this right, I, I was giving studies to a family, and they had heard a lot of the Adventist message, and I was really trying to move them toward decision. But then they were so excited about they were learning, they kept inviting more people who knew nothing. So then I'm saying, how can I move this one family to where God, I think, is leading them to commitment to the Advent message? And then I've got to move this other family who knows nothing about us, and I've got to move them, we're moving them, to, we're helping them together. So how do I do that? Well, I walk them through the book of Revelation in this way. In this way. And I even, even. Because when I'm urging them to keep the commandments of God, well, the family that knows about the Sabbath, what are they saying? That means the Sabbath. The family that knows nothing about this stuff, they're saying, that means we got to give it up. You know, not even Sunday. They're not even thinking. So they're just thinking, we got to be devoted to Jesus, right? But it's interesting. The one family, they made their strong commitment. The other family, and I never even talked about Sabbath to them. Their big, beautiful homeschool family, and there's this great divide in the home because through these studies, the wife, even though not talking about Sabbath, became fully convinced she needs to keep the Sabbath. And she's wrestling in her heart how to relate to her husband and the rest of her family who's not where she's at. Does that make sense? So, so the neat thing about this is you can give this study at the very beginning of the Bible's sharing process, because you can do it in a very non confrontational way but it will begin to prepare the mind to receive the truth in a deeper fuller way does that make sense so let's look there in revelation 14 we know the issues we know the controversy what does god do to keep the non to help the non remnant become remnant and what does god do to help the remnant stay remnant revelation 14 6 Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with the everlasting gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth to every nation and tribe and language and people m- Notice my friends God's very first message to the world in these angelic m- messages is the message of the everlasting gospel Can you say amen to that Now, we've got a book. The book is Matthew. What is the book of Matthew's full title? The Gospel According to Matthew. And the book John. What's John's... The Gospel According to... And what's Luke, what's Luke called? The Gospel According to... Luke. And, and what's Mark... What's, what's Mark's full title again? The Gospel According to... Mark. Now, what's Matthew about? Just about Jesus. What's Mark about? Jesus. What's Luke about? Jesus. What's John about? Jesus. What's the gospel about? Jesus. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter one. Look what Paul says in Romans chapter one. I think it's important for us to reflect a moment on what revelation means when it says the everlasting gospel. Romans chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, 4, 3 or 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart to the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. So Paul was set apart to the gospel. The gospel was promised beforehand in the Old Testament. Can you say amen? Amen. Old Testament properly understood, according to Paul, is a gospel document. Can you say amen? And then it says in verse 3, what is the gospel about? According to Romans chapter 1, verse 3, concerning His Son. So the gospel is about Jesus. The gospel is revealed in the Old Testament, and it is about Jesus. Can you say amen? And then it goes on to describe, in even more detail, concerning his son, who was descended from David. What kind of person was David? David was the... He was the king. Wasn't David king? So when he says, this gospel is about Jesus, the descendant of David, he is proclaiming the lordship of Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? "...concerning his Son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, who is declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord." Now this is interesting. So it's about Jesus, who is the Lord, who died and was resurrected. So for Paul, the gospel is about the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, and the lordship of Jesus, King Jesus." Romans 1, 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Well, why is the gospel the power of God to save? For in it, verse 17, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So the gospel is about Jesus... It's about the power of God to save. Why? Because the gospel gives you God's righteousness. Well, why would I need God's righteousness? Romans 1 verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Well, of course we need God's righteousness because God's wrath is against our unrighteousness. Can you say amen to that? That's the gospel. That is the Gospel. It's about the Lord Jesus, who died for our sins and resurrected, who is enthroned in heaven as our Lord, who will give us His righteousness as a gift in place of all of our unrighteousness. Or, as the book of Revelation says it, in Revelation chapter 1, look there, Revelation 1. Really, what, a, what an amazing text of Scripture fantastically interesting. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, John to the seven churches that in in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. I like that. It says, grace and peace to you. I don't know about you, but sometimes I read that stuff too quick. And I don't let the grace and peace of God flood my life when I read them. Sometimes I just like to close my eyes. And I like to think about those words, not just as well-wishing, but as actual grace and peace, flooding my life because of the Father, and the Holy Spirit, and the Son." I like that. Grace to you from Him who was, and is, and is to come, and from the seven spirits that are before the throne. And then it says, from Jesus Christ, and then it talks about who Jesus is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. And then this text is so interesting. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his own blood. I like that. And in the Greek, it's such an interesting arrangement of language. It says, to him who is loving us and freed us from our sins in the past. So it's saying because Jesus is loving you right now, He freed you from your sins in the past. Isn't that interesting? Such an interesting choice of present and past tense language. Because Jesus passionately is loving you right now as the resurrected Lord, He did something for you in the past when He gave His life on the cross. It's interesting, in the book of Revelation, that, there he is, that, that simple gospel statement. He is loving you, and he has freed you from your sins. I like the word freed. You're, King James says cleansed. There are very similar words in the Greek. But what happened is, is the word freed, I think, is probably the better word because you really have some Passover connotations here where God freed his people. Now, it's interesting, because in Revelation 1, you have Christ freeing you from your sins through His blood. Then in Revelation 12, we read it earlier in verse 11, it says, "...they overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb." So it's interesting, Revelation begins with freeing us from our sins, and right in the middle it talks about us overcoming sin, and right at the end of the book it talks about us being free from the presence of sin in a new heavens and a new earth. Can you say amen? In the book of Revelation, the gospel message is a holistic message that talks about your freedom from guilt, the guilt of sin. It talks about the power to overcome sin in Satan, and then it talks about the new heaven and the new earth. That's the gospel message that God has given us to bear to the world, that Jesus is loving you and He freed you from your sins by His own blood, that you can overcome sin and Satan through the power of the blood, through the word of your testimony, and that... Ultimately, there will come a time when temptation is gone and sin and sinners are no more, and there is a new heaven and a new earth, and we are living in a reordered creation instead of a disordered creation. Can you say amen? Amen. That's really the, the holistic gospel message of the book of Revelation. Christ's present love for you, His love for you, His transformative, overcoming power, and God taking away all the disorder of this world and reordering the universe. God has given us a really awesome, comprehensive message. Amen. Amen. And I think that the Revelation fourteen six is calling us to preach that beautiful, comprehensive message. And it's important that, that, that we, we wrestle with and embrace the comprehensive message. I don't know about you, but I, I sometimes struggle. There have been times in my life where I've asked myself if I'm really a Christian because I feel like I'm still kind of disordered myself. In other words, I'm not as perfect as I would want to be. Anybody else ever wrestle, man, am I really a follower of Jesus? How could a follower of Jesus be as screwed up as I am? And I like Revelation because it it talks about liberation from your sin, it talks about overcoming your sin and Satan, and then it talks about the reorganization of the universe. And we need all three of those things. And, 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 and if we're not a believer, we need to become a believer and be freed from our past. If we are believers by the power of the blood of Jesus and the word of our testimony, he will help us to overcome. But no matter how much we overcome, we're still in a broken body and a broken universe. And so we're longing for the reordering of the universe where we're free from the brokenness of the flesh and the brokenness of our bodies and the brokenness of a disordered universe. Amen? Amen. That's the comprehensive gospel message that God has called us to preach as a people. Now, in Revelation chapter 14, verse 7, Revelation 14, verse he, he follows that gospel message up with, with several incredibly important things. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of waters. He follows this announcement of this comprehensive gospel message, that is, that God frees you from your sin. He leads you to be an overcomer by the power of the blood and the spirit. He, he is going to reorder creation. He calls us then to fear God. And we, we don't really understand what fear means. And, and oftentimes we, we, we want to say, well, that fear means to respect. And I suppose there's a certain degree of truth to that. But you know, there is a word in Greek for respect. And there's a word for fear. And the writer John chose to use the word fear. Isn't that interesting? So why did he do that? I don't know. Exactly. But I can try to illustrate it, and then maybe we'll look at a Bible text or two. When I was 16 years old, my curfew was midnight. Um, That might be a little later than you should give your kids a curfew, but whatever. Whatever. probably depends if they're at the pastor's house or not. I don't know. but uh, Anyway, my curfew was midnight. But I sort of got into the habit of coming home around 2. And my dad let me do that for about a month. You know, I guess I don't know what he thought. He must have thought the first time, well, you know, he lost track of time. And the second time, you know, he might have thought, well, he lost track of time twice. But by the time a month came, he was saying... All right, we got to nip this thing in the bud. And so he had this conversation. Now, I had a really good dad, a sweet man, never violent with us. Um, And one morning, he woke me up after being out too late, woke me up early, came downstairs singing, totally off-key, purposefully, good morning to you. Good morning to you, good morning to you, happy, happy day. Just screaming, yelling that at the top of his lungs. And then, and then he said to me, he said, you know, son, you might be getting bigger than me, and you might be 16, but I still get up earlier than you, and I know where the baseball bat is at. Now, my dad was not an abusive man. He was not telling me that he was going to beat me with a bat while I slept. What he was saying in a humorous, cute way was, I'm dad, and you're the son, and you might be 16, but I'm still dad, and you're still the son. Don't forget it. Can you say amen? Amen. Now, if my, dad, if my dad was an abusive father, we would want him to be arrested. But my dad wasn't an abusive My dad was a loving father, and it was his sweet way of saying, I am dad, and you are the son. You're getting big, but you're still the boy. My friends, when the Bible calls us to fear God, it, it is calling us to recognize God as God, and we are simply human. God is God. God is God. And part of our message is to help others see that God is God. God is a friend. God is a father. But we have to be careful to not make God our chum. Does that make sense? God is a friend. But God is still God. And so we need to remember that. We need to have a proper conception of who God is. And part of what helps us to understand God is our experience with Him. Go to Psalm 130. I like the language. This is really, this verse was really paradigm shifting for me at one time in my Christian experience. Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Isn't that amazing? If God was to mark your iniquities, who would be able to stand before him? And then he says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be, what? Feared. Isn't that beautiful? So we look at God and we say, oh God, I am a pathetic excuse for a human... My own life is so disordered and I am so sinful and I've done so many things and my heart is so prone to wander. And God, if you were to mark my iniquities, I wouldn't be able to stand. I would, I would be destroyed. But with you there is forgiveness. Amen. With you there is forgiveness. And out of that experience of recognizing my sinfulness in God's love and mercy springs up a proper fear of God, not a cowering fear, but a fear that recognizes God is the holy, good God that He is, and me as the broken, disordered, sinful human being that I am. That is what causes a proper fear of God. Now, it says there in Revelation 14 that we are not only to fear God, but we are also to what? Give Him glory. Glory. Now, if you look at Revelation 16, that word glory is used. Revelation chapter 16, verse 9. Revelation 16, verse 9, it says, it's talking about when he poured out the fourth plague on the earth. The fourth angel, I'll read verse 8 so we get that context. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire, and they were scorched by fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over the plagues. And then notice what it says. They did not repent to give him glory. Now notice, according to these verses, where is... Where is this experience of giving glory to God found? It is found through the experience of repentance. It is found through the experience of repentance, and so God calls us to fear Him, to understand who He is and who we are in relationship to Him, and then to give God glory through that deep, heartfelt experience of repentance. I don't know about you, but there, there, there have been a few times in my life where I've experienced deep, deep, heartfelt repentance. And you know, it wasn't too long ago, I was listening to some preaching, and, and my heart was moved to repentance in a way that my heart had not been moved to repentance in a long time. And it wasn't even so much, you know, it wasn't like I said, oh, man, I really wronged Sister, Sister Jones, or, you know, I really evil spoke about Brother so-and-so. It wasn't anything like that, but it was just the, the, the overwhelming sense of the brokenness of the human condition. I was so grateful. I was so grateful to God that He would grace me with such an experience to just kneel before Him, just understanding the brokenness of my own sinful self and the awesome forgiving love of Jesus. I think sometimes we don't seek the gift of repentance enough. often we fail to give God the glory He deserves through a life of repentance. Now, there's nothing to motivate repentance like a little judgment. I mean, isn't that true? I mean, we're all sorry, hopefully, when we do the wrong thing, but when we recognize that we're going to get in some serious trouble because we did the wrong thing, then we're even sorrier. And that's what it says. It says, fear God and give Him glory. And then there's that motivation. For the hour of His what? Judgment. judgment has come. Now, all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the New Testament, the announcement that the hour of His judgment has come is not there. In fact, look at, look at Revelation chapter 6. Look at Revelation chapter 6. And we'll look in probably around 9 or 10. Yeah, Revelation 6, we'll begin in verse 9. When He opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the Word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will what? Judge. So you have these people, they were martyred for Jesus, their souls are symbolically under the altar, they are crying out, how long, O Lord, until you Judge. Evidently, the judgment has not yet begun at this point in earth's history. They're crying out, how long, O Lord, until you judge? And then eventually we get to the answer in Revelation 10, there'll be no more delay. And then comes the announcement in Revelation 14, the hour of his judgment has come. You see, throughout the New Testament, like it says there when Paul was preaching to, who was it, Felix, he was reasoning of righteousness, temperance, and a judgment to come, yet in the future. I think that's Acts 17. Acts 17, yeah, it is Acts 17. See, throughout the New Testament, the the announcement is made, the judgment is coming. It is yet future. And even in the Revelation, there's a time in the book of Revelation when the judgment is yet future. But then there is a time where God's people will be announcing to the world the hour of His judgment has come. Now, um, a Seventh-day Adventist who have studied Daniel and Revelation, we understand from the book of Daniel that that announcement began to be made beginning in the early 1800s. And the time of the judgment began in 1844. The hour of his judgment has come. Now, to me, this is classic. This is important for us to understand that there is a God who is holy, who has a judgment, and it should cause us to have a proper reverence for who He is, to fear Him, and to give Him glory. Now, it's interesting. This is so interesting. If, If Adventists are right, and I think we are, about that announcement, the hour of His judgment has come, beginning in 1844, the next verse is so interesting, the next clause. And worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. Guess what year Charles Darwin published his first work on evolutionary theory? 1844. Is that remarkable? The very year that Charles Darwin takes the world by storm with his evolutionary theory. And it's interesting because his work wasn't done. I read, this, I read this, it's such an interesting story. His work wasn't even close to done, but he was afraid that he was gonna die in an untimely way. And that his theory would never get the play that it deserved to get. And so he just threw it together and published it in 1844, just so it could get out there in case he died. Case yeah. How many of you have ever thought, "Oh, I need to do this really quick, just in case I might die"? <laughs> I mean, do you? I mean, I don't think like that. Do you think like that? I mean, it wasn't like he had cancer and he was saying, "Oh man, I got to get the." No, he was a perfectly healthy, reasonably young man who said, "Man, I'm afraid I'm going to die. I got to get this out." Remarkable. So, in the very year that God says that the first angel's message pointing us back to worshiping the Creator would happen, in that very year, Satan inspired his emissary to be proclaiming that God is not the Creator. What a remarkable turn of events! What a remarkable turn of events! Now what's so fascinating about that call to worship God as creator, worship him who made heaven and earth the sea, that is actually the single largest quotation from the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. John the Revelator is actually quoting from the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt the labor do all thy work. And then he says the reason we should remember the Sabbath day is because in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Incidentally, where did I learn that? Where did I learn that this is a quote from the Old Testament? Did I learn it from an Adventist? No, I learned it from the Greek New Testament that every kid gets when he goes to the seminary. It's right there, it gives you a list in the Greek New Testament, it gives you a list of all the Old Testament backgrounds. It's not an Adventist book. It's, a, it's, it's, it's the standard seminary. it's the standard Greek New Testament that everybody gets. And right there in the Greek New Testament, they tell you all the background texts that they know of, and the background texts of Revelation 1412, or excuse me, Revelation 147. Worship him who made, where, where is that taken from? It's taken right from Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, in the Sabbath command. Now, this is interesting. What is the issue at the end of time? The issue is obedience in the context of worship and authentic faith commitment to Jesus. The one time God asks us to worship him in this section, he calls us to worship him who is the creator in the context of the fourth commandment. Can you say amen to that? People have often said, you Adventists are crazy for seeing the Sabbath there in Revelation 13 and 14, and and I have to say, well, I frankly think that you're crazy if you don't see it. (laughs) Many non-Adventist scholars see the fourth commandment reference there. The reason they see it is because it's as plain as the nose on my face. My friends, we see this cosmic conflict. All right, I'm going to wrap this up. We've got five minutes. I'm going to try to bring it together because I've really preached like four sermons in one or three sermons in one. So I want to bring this together so that we can kind of tie it up. We see there's a battle between good and evil. It began in heaven. That battle was transferred to this earth. And Satan attacked the people of God. He attacked them so that there was nothing but a remnant left. And so he says, I know what I'll do. I'll look like the Father, I'll look like the Son, I'll look like the Spirit. I will counterfeit the Trinity. And through that counterfeit Trinity, I will lead them to worship in a way that is inconsistent with my commandments. I will lead them away from an authentic commitment to Jesus Christ. And God says, no, I don't want this to happen. Let me send a message out to turn remnant in, to keep remnant remnant, and to help non remnant become remnant. What does the world need to know in order to be a part of God's last day remnant? They need to know the holistic gospel picture that Jesus is loving you and freeing you from your sins. By the blood of Jesus and by your experience with Jesus, you can be an overcomer. That He's going to reorder this disordered world. You need to know that gospel, that holistic gospel that is taught in the New Testament. You need to recognize God as God and you as a broken, sinful person. Have a proper fear of God. We need to give God glory through a life of repentance. Like Paul says, a repentance that needeth not to be repented of. And we have a bit of motivation at this hour, this late hour in earth's history. That is, the hour of His judgment has come. And then finally, in that judgment hour, when when the Creator God is being disregarded, God calls us to worship Him as Creator within the framework of the seventh-day Sabbath command. That is God's first message to help remnants stay remnant. Don't give up on it. And that is God's message to the world to help make them a part of the remnant. So for us today, I think it would be fitting for us to seek God, to say, God, I want to believe the gospel that Jesus is loving us and freeing us. Okay. I want to reverence him and live life that brings glory to him through repentance, worship him as creator in this judgment hour. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you for this effort you are making to help us stay remnant. Use us to help others become remnant through this awesome message. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org.